wonderful chapter. I want us to address once again the wonderful subject, topic, justification by faith. I've tried to get across to you over the last several weeks that when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, there are several aspects, of course, but the bedrock of our doctrine of salvation is justification by faith alone. And as Paul closes out chapter 4, of course, he didn't know it was chapter 4. Someone else helped him later, you know. But as he brought his thoughts to a close that we call end of chapter 4, let me tell you what he does. He tries to make justification very meaningful to us, very purposeful, and I think very uh, practical. It brings it into focus. Now, Now, remember what justification is. It's a declaration, a legal declaration by God that we are treated as not guilty. And gang, that's important for you to understand. That's important for us to understand, not in a theological sense, but in a practical sense. You need to know that when God looks at you, although you're a sinner, and although you're wicked, and although you're deserving of hell, when God looks at you, he looks at you through the, the blood of the Lamb, and he accepts you just the way you are. Justification by faith answers some very important spiritual questions for us. Questions that force us to think about being accepted by God, all the while knowing that we're sinners and we can't be accepted by God based upon who we are, what we do. There's no work good enough, no merit worthy enough. It has to be based upon the work of another, another who was willing another who was worthy. Now, if you've been with us in our study in chapter 4, one of the questions we dealt with a few weeks ago, the question of Abraham, if you look at chapter uh, verse 1, if you want to gander at it there for a moment, the question was, how could I be righteous? We saw a few weeks ago that Abraham, the Bible says, believed God, and it was reckoned or deposited righteousness into his account. Last week, we looked at it from a different perspective. How can I be forgiven? And we saw where David was forgiven on the same basis as Abraham was, that God reckoned forgiveness to him apart from works. And so what we learned about justification is that God deposits his righteousness into our account, gang. God accepts you. He favors you. He's in your camp. That's what we learned. We also learn that he does not deposit sinfulness into our account, all depending upon the grace of Almighty God. Let me tell you what happened to me this weekend. I, uh, I had a uh, 46th high school reunion. Now, I didn't want to go. My wife kind of made me go. I didn't want to go because I figured it would be a bunch of old, gray-headed, wrinkly folks, and I'm not old, wrinkly. Uh, but anyway, I went. And there, but the reason I went is that I, um, I knew that a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in a lot of years was going to be there. Last time I saw my friend, I spent the night with him in the hospital waiting for him to die. He had three shots in his gut doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He uh, was one of those country boys that carried a bowie knife from his waist down to his knee, and he was quick to pull it out. And he was a big, strong guy that you didn't want to mess with. 
And I heard that uh, he was going to be there, and I had told Paula, I said, you know, I really, you know, my life's different now, and I, I'm not sure I want to go back, but I, Danny's going to be there. And when Danny came in, my heart just melted. Uh, he was a wild guy, wild child, but we were good friends. And there was something about him that just always made me glad to be my friend. And so as the afternoon went on yesterday, uh, he and I just got alone. He said, Tom, I, I came because I wanted to see you. And I said, well, Danny, I came because the last time I saw you, you were dying. And he said, you know, Tom, he said, I was so bad. And I was so wicked. My life has been so bad. And I, I could spend hours telling you, uh, gang, you just wouldn't believe the stuff he's gone through. But he said, you know what I've learned? And I said, what is that? He said, I've learned that God is patient and that God really loves me in spite of who I am. And I was thinking, well, that's my sermon. Danny, you ought to come. And uh, he, he said, Tom, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. He said, I actually taught a Sunday school class, and that kind of shook me up. And I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, he said, well, you're a preacher. I said, yeah, but I wasn't as bad as you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I sing in the choir. And uh, he said, I don't understand that. And I said, Danny, the only way you can understand that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he does not impute your sin unto you. And he does impute the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear people, that is justification by faith. That is his story. And my prayer for our people is that is our story. That is your story today, okay? Now, at the end of chapter 4, we're going to kind of wrap it up and we're going to answer a couple questions this morning, okay? Question number one is, why did Christ die, and why did he rise again? Okay, we're going to deal with that. And then the other question, and I think, in, in fact, we're going to kind of start with it, because I think it's really critical we get our head around it, is who killed Christ? Who killed Christ? Would you stand in honor of God's word, Romans chapter 4, beginning verse 23 through 25, just a few verses, Okay. And I want you to notice how he draws it together. Now, not for his sake only. That's a reference back to Abraham, okay? Not for, if you allow me, Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited, reckoned, deposited. There's that word 11 times in the chapter, okay? But for our sake also, isn't that beautiful? To whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, he who was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Father, incredible three verses. I pray we'll dig it out. I pray that God will mine a little gold this morning. We'll apply it to our lives and we'll realize as bad as we are, sinful as we are, because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of your actions in grace, we stand approved 
by you. God, it's an amazing thing that you would smile at me, but you do because of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. All right, gang, thank you. Be seated. Keep your Bible open. Um, I want to I begin our discussion this morning on this premise, okay? All are sinful. Now listen to me. All are sinful. That means the best person here is sinful. When we think of sinful, I think of Danny or Tom or some of you. But the best of the best are all, are all sinful. But not all will be saved. So I want you to hear me out here. The atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ is limited. It is limited to those who believe by faith. Notice in verse 24, the word to whom, or the word those. And dear church, we do not believe in a universal salvation. Some churches do. Some preachers do. It's being purported all over our nation in this universal idea we don't believe in a universal salvation. Our doctrine is built around those words in verse 24. Those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. That's a limited atonement. It is limited to those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. And that means that not everybody that goes to church not everybody that calls themselves a Baptist, not everybody that calls themselves a Methodist will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who believe that Jesus was the Christ, that his blood sacrifice on Calvary was sufficient to save and have repented of their sin and by faith embraced Jesus Christ, that's not universal, beloved. That's limited. It involves a complete surrender of your heart in repentance. It means that you agree with God that you're a sinner in confession. It means that there's a marked difference in your life because there's a motivation that try to encourages you and motivates you to live in obedience and you persevere in the faith and all of those things that goes along with the faith life. Those are the redeemed. Those are the ones to whom God has placed his favor on. Now, I want to answer those questions I posed to you, okay? I want to start with the last because I think it's important. Who killed Christ? Many years ago, there was a great, great preacher. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He, uh, he was uh, a Presbyterian. I actually think he was a closet Baptist. He just didn't know it. Uh, he's a great Presbyterian preacher, and he's one of my favorite authors. I, I just I like reading what he writes. Here's what he said. He says, it's absolutely impossible to understand biblical Christianity unless you understand that God the Father put Jesus Christ to death on the cross. Now think about it. It's impossible to understand biblical Christianity until you can get your head around the fact that it was God the Father that killed his Christ on the cross. Now, when you read uh, the accounts about our Lord's crucifixion, when you uh, see all the movies that are out now, it's easy to think that the Jews killed him, right? 
It's also easy to think that the Romans killed them. And when you hear preachers like me and Don and others preach, teachers teach, it's easy to think that we killed them because of our sin. And frankly, there's an element of truth to all that, isn't there? Who stirred up the people? The Jews did. Why? They hated him. At least the leaders did. And so, in a sense, the Jews killed Christ. We know that it was the Romans who took the hammer and the spikes, crowned thorns, and placed them on. They were the ones who were, the, uh, I guess, the active agents, we could say that, in the crucifixion. And we know, do we not, that the reason there was a cross and the reason there was a crucifixion and the very reason there's an atonement is because you and I as sinners caused God or moved God to act. But the fact of the matter is this. All of those are incidental. The fact of the matter is as believers we must see that God was the killer of the Christ. In fact, in verse 24, there's a shift of object. The object that Paul's writing about is God. Notice verse 24. Believed in him who raised Jesus, our Lord. Now, the question is, why is that important? Well, it's important to know because the price of sin is infinitely high and the cost cannot be humanly paid. So only God could pay that price. Only God could bear the cost. Let me give you some verses. Isaiah 53.10. I think we're going to put, are we going to put those up there, John? Isaiah 53.10. There we go. Listen to that. But the Lord was pleased to do what? To crush him, putting him to grief. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, speaking of Christ, Delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Who killed Christ? God did. Ephesians 1.11, I, I love the verse. Having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now I want you to step back with me into the counsel of eternity, if you would. There the Godhead met in counsel. They determined that there should be a creation and that the creature should be given a free will. It was known to them, of course, that this creature would reject God's call, would in fact reject the creator, turn unto himself, bringing condemnation upon all humankind. They knew in counsel that it would be necessary for divine holy wrath to be visited upon this human creature, for justice sake. But in that council on high, before creation ever began, it was also determined that the Son, oh, the Son, because of my sin, the Son, in perfect obedience to the Father, would willingly submit to his holy wrath. And as a substitute, become the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for those who believe in him whose wrath was settled on the mercy seat. That's my story. That's my friend's story who should have never lived and then when he died should have gone to hell. 
And yet somehow in the manifold grace of God, in the wisdom of the Father, saw fit to convict him of sin and drew him in repentance to being born again to follow the Master. And beloved, that's why it's important to understand that biblical Christianity is the fact that it was God that was moved to kill his son, to settle holy wrath. And I submit to you, that's the basis of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And not many here today in our nation are preaching that. The atonement of Christ, I mentioned to you last week about being radicals, radicalization. The atonement of Jesus Christ radicalizes a life. It changes you. It's the greatest motivation in a wicked world to live for Christ. Regardless of what people may think, regardless of how people may act, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you understand that it was God the Father that, 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 that killed his son and he did it on your behalf. Your life will be totally, radically changed. That's why I believe the atonement is limited. It's limited to those who believe, and their lives are marked by a complete difference, okay? Now, let's move on to the first question, okay? Why did Christ die? Why did he rise again? Look at verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised, could be raised up because of our justification. Did you notice in verse 25, there's a parallel construction there. In fact, your translation may be a little different, may even show it a little bit better. But it's a parallel construction, which means that the force of one carries the force of the second. Okay, let's look at it again. He was delivered over, and then he was raised up. Those two phrases carry the same power. Okay, now what does it mean to be delivered up? Well, that word delivered is generally used to speak of a criminal being handed over to punishment. Amazing. But whose transgressions? Our transgressions. And so because of our transgressions, Christ was handed over. That's why it's called vicarious. You've heard probably me, others, other preachers talk about vicarious. The word vicarious means it was for someone else. God took his wrath out on a substitute, which was his son which was determined before the first star was ever set into the sky, and the Godhead agreed upon it. He was delivered up for you, and he was delivered up for me. That changed my life. It ought to change your life. The word raised up means that God raised his son because there was nothing more the son could do. He gave his all, and it was enough. And by being raised on the third day, God said, I accept the payment, it's fully paid. And then he justifies the believers by declaring us not guilty, justified. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy by the name of John Murray. John Murray was just a, a brilliant theologian, okay? And uh, he wrote down this. He said, Jesus was delivered up in order to atone for our sins. He was raised in order that we might be justified. Some have changed that last little bit to say, as proof we are justified. God did that. 
Now, I want to close with something, okay? It's not very long. I understand it's a short sermon. I knew that going in. Uh, I did go to a class reunion. I'm an old person now, okay? But I want to I wanna close with an illustration that, to me, describes the vicarious substitutionary death of Jesus Christ as well as any of I read. And, and I'm going to be leaning on, again, that wonderful theologian and preacher of years gone by, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He said the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus, the example of it or the illustration of it, is pictured in all four Gospels. When a robber, a murderer, a seditionist named Barabbas was mentioned. Barabbas, by the way, it's an interesting play on words. The word Barabbas means son of the father. There are those that will take that and say he's representative of all mankind. I don't want to go that far, but it sure seems like he could be representative of all mankind. Son of the father, you got it? Okay. As the custom was, a prisoner was always freed at the high Jewish festival. Pilate was under a lot of pressure. Pilate thought, because he really didn't see any fault in Christ and he wanted him to go, he thought that he could escape, escape the pressure by releasing Jesus. But the crowd cried out, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now here's what Barnhouse, I think, does so good. He said, can you see him sitting there in that dungeon? Perhaps looking at his hands, knowing soon there would be nails driven through piercing him. Oh, dear people, the horror of crucifixion. Suddenly, he hears the crowds, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. He hears the noise of footsteps down the hall. He hears the key slid into the lock and the turning of the key. And he knows justifiably. He knows that he is doomed. He is led out to a frenzied crowd, expecting to be plummeted, expecting to be grabbed and then crucified. But he is led out, and he is said, or he is told, you can go free. And he looks around at the frenzied crowd, and he's free. And so he follows along and he sees the other guy pick up a cross, forced to carry it all the way to Golgotha, to Calvary, the place of the skull. He hears the sounds of the hammer upon the rusty nail. He sees the blood. He sees the cross that was meant for him lifted up and then dropped. And right in the process of that, something, when his nails were being, when his hands were being nailed to the cross, some think that when the cross was lifted up and dropped with a, stu a thud, the Savior says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And of all the people on that day, there's one Barabbas who knows that Jesus has taken his place. 
The only man in history who could say he physically took my place. The final question today is this. Has he taken your spiritual place? Has he become your substitute? This weekend as I was talking to some of my friends, you know what old people do? They talk about the past. You know, and so we were talking about playing ball and all those things. You know, we really, by the end of the day, we were really good at what we were doing. But as, as we were talking, we talked about, you know, who played and who didn't play and who sat on the bench. And we talked about how sitting on the bench, actually the coach's wife, she's 89, she was there. Uh, we, we talked about how the coach would look down the end of the bench and would say, hey, you, Tom, or you, Danny, or you, whatever, come here. Go in and substitute for the real ball player, you know. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is critical for you to understand and appreciate because God the Father killed the Son because of you and because of me. The vicarious substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very basic of justification by faith. Yes, he took physically Barabbas' place. But the question is, do you understand that he took your place? Let's bow. Barbara's going to come, and I want you to just be very still for a minute. I want you to look into your heart for just a moment. Oh, dear people, we live in a culture that says we're all okay. We're all going to be okay in the end. But we know better, don't we? We know better. The only okay will be when the Son of God returns for his people. Those who have been redeemed, those who have been justified by faith, that's radicalized their life, and they live it. Has that happened to you? Is your life changed? Does your life reflect the glory of God that's been deposited there, reckoned to you, credited to your account because of Christ? Father, I, I love you, and I stand amazed that you would love me. God, I believe it because, number one, the Bible tells us that. And I believe the Bible. I believe it because there's a change in my heart. This weekend reminded me of a change. I, I danced to the tune of a different drummer. There's something beating within me that changes the things that I used to do and wanted to do. And now I don't want to do them that's not me because I know who I am it's because of you and who you are and there may be some today 
that's played the game to no avail. Maybe today they realize it's all by Christ or there's nothing at all. In the next few moments, Father, we just surrender it to you. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's quietly stand with our heads bowed for a moment.